We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Bueller-Garcia. You know, shooting with a silencer can be more enjoyable and is definitely safer for your hearing. American Warrior Radio is proud to be partnered with Silencer Central, where they've been making silence simple since 2005. Silencers are legal in 41 states. If you'd like to explore your options, start at silencercentral.com to check your state's rules. Their experts will handle all the paperwork and they'll even thread your barrel. They also have financing options. At Silencer Central, Silencers is all they do. They are the experts. Silencercentral.com. Today we're going to have our first check-in of the year with the Havoc Journal. HavocJournal.com is my go-to site for all things military and first responder. They're the voice of the veteran and first responder community. Joining us to share what is new with the Havoc Journal is their owner, Charles Faint. Charles is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army. He was uh, serving the intelligence service. He had three deployments to Iraq and four to Afghanistan, mostly working with special forces units. Charles, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ben, I'm proud to be back. Thank you. Looking forward to a great 2024. Charles, last time we spoke, we, we were talking about the situation in Israel and, and, and Gaza. Um, obviously, you're intelligence officer, and, and you've spent quite a bit of time there in that area as part of another program you're involved with. Since we last spoke, Charles, things have gotten more complex. You know, Iran's nibbling around the edges. Their, their proxies probably pushed it. Well, not probably. They pushed us too far. You know, checking the roster, we have Israel, Syria, Yemen, Egypt, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Iraq, a couple of other nasty groups I never even heard of until 30 days ago, and then, of course, the U.S., Great Britain, France, India, and probably a couple of others. Are you surprised this hasn't conflagrated even more? Yeah, Ben, I, I frankly, I am. And just reading the same reports that everyone else sees on, on the television, but also based on my experiences on the ground, I'm surprised that it hasn't blown up bigger. We did lose some service members in Jordan, which is terrible. And I'm pretty upset about that. But I am surprised and pleasantly that it hasn't gotten bigger. That doesn't mean it won't in the very near future. But for right now, I, I think we're as stable as we can be in that region. Well, I mean, you and I definitely probably agree on this, Charles, is it shouldn't have gotten that far. If you're lobbing artillery and missiles at one of our bases, even if someone doesn't get hurt. Well, let me back up a little. My brother, John, was um, OSI, Army OSI, and he spent some time in that part of the world. And... In no uncertain terms, he told me the only thing these people respect is power and violence and your willingness to exercise that. I tend to agree with you, Ben. I think no one was more surprised than Iran's proxies when they actually managed to kill some Americans. So I'm, I'm pretty sure they're like, oh, crap, I can't believe that actually worked. And then when the panic mode and we saw the Iranian regime making public pronouncements about ceasefires and pulling their guys back in. So, yeah, I, I think that. That was something that I didn't expect, and I think both sides, or all sides involved, are trying to keep it at a low boil right now. Do you think that their sense of self-preservation is sufficiently strong? Where they just they don't want to, they know they can't, shouldn't get into a shooting war with the United States and our allies. I think they know that they can't take us right now, and I don't think they feel like they need to. This isn't a good time for them in general, in particular right now. Not over this not over Gaza, not over things that aren't in Iran's long-term strategic interests. Now, of course, they're 
funding insurgencies all over the world, not only the Houthis and the Palestinians, but anywhere that they think they can hurt us in Iraq, elsewhere around the world. So I think that they don't think that they can win right now, and I don't think that they are feeling an existential threat. I don't think their key interests are being threatened, so I think they're willing to back down a little bit and, and live to fight another day. It looks like Israel is undertaking or, or preparing or even uh, executing what looked like the final battles there. What do things look like after this, Charles? I mean, it, it seems the two-state solution has been tried and tried and tried, and well, it just... It's not going to work. Correct me, you're smarter than me. Why can't Gaza just be integrated into the state of Israel and everybody's equal citizens? Part of it is population base, but a large part of it is ideology. So Gaza is controlled, or was controlled, we'll see what happens in the war over, by Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. But they came to power democratically and displaced Fatah, which was the Palestinian Authority in charge of both the West Bank and Gaza. So they came to power, took over Gaza, expelled and murdered Fada. Fada is now exclusively in the West Bank. So part of the problem with the reoccupying Gaza is because Israel controlled Gaza for a long time, that the Palestinians are going to continue to keep fighting. So possessing Gaza is not necessarily in Israel's strategic interest. They've given back land for peace before. The largest example of this is giving back Sinai to the Egyptians. But the Gazans uh, are governed by Hamas, as I mentioned. Hamas's founding documents call for the destruction of Israel. So those two inter- interests are fundamentally misaligned. So right now, the, uh, a two-state solution is dead, but I think in the long term, that's the only viable option. And But I'm not sure that it's going to be a two-state solution with the other state being in two places, i.e. Gaza and the West Bank. So I think in, in the immediate term, the Israelis have made it very clear that they're going to they're gonna occupy Gaza for a little while. We'll see what that looks like over time. And to answer your question why they don't just absorb them is because it's a, it's a numbers issue. So Israel is a, a democratic nation. It's a Jewish nation. And importing or absorbing millions more non-Jewish Palestinians who are committed to the destruction of the state isn't smart in a democratic society. So they're not going to allow them to come in and be part of the population either. And that's one of the reasons we have this existing stalemate. Gosh, so you're you're saying allowing millions of people to flow across the border unimpeded is a bad idea, Trust? I know we're not a political well, talk show. We'll leave it at that. I, I was talking to my dad at dinner the other night, and he, uh, you know, he asked me, he says, what, what is it about that region? I mean, going back just as constantly in turmoil and conflict, and the only answer I could come up with is religion. So that's definitely part of it. That is, and that is a large part of it. But have you ever been to Jerusalem? Have you ever been to the old city? No, sir. Okay. It, it's hard to explain to the to, to folks what it's like, the Jerusalem effect of getting there. And even if you're not religious, and I'm not particularly religious, but recognizing the history of that location and seeing how close all these holy sites are to each other, and to see that history there and how much it means to folks, you've got the Jews that are paying praying against the Western Wall, which is one of the walls encircling the Temple Mount where where the Dome of the Rock Shrine and Al-Aqsa Mosque is for the Muslims. And then a literal short walk away, you've got the the Holy Sepulchre of Jesus and Bethlehem's down the road, etc. So you got all these people who are angry. Many of them are poor. They're super motivated by religion or ethnicity, and they have different ideas for the future. And I think it's it definitely religion is a component to it, but there's a lot of secularism that feeds this 
this fight also. In fact, in the early days of Taliban Liberation Organization, some of their major movers in that organization were secular or Christian. They were Arabs, but they, they wanted a, a Palestinian state, so they were, they were fighting for that. So you got folks that want their own state, and you've got something that's not easily divisible, like land, like a nation, mm-hmm. it, and sometimes people just end up fighting over it. Well, so there's a certain element of tribalism as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to touch more on that later on in the show. I want to talk about uh, Ayman Kafel's latest article where he's talking about the, the resurgence of the mil, uh, militant groups and terrorism. And, and I mean, certainly it's it's interesting how what's happening in Israel, Gaza, is, is having you know repercussions literally all around the globe. But, um, well, I guess... You work on what you can control, Charles, and so I guess we'll just, we'll just kind of keep watching that. Charles, when we come back, I want to talk about kind of in that same theme. Uh, I mentioned my brothers, and, and I think you're of the same uh, philosophy. You, you had an article called A Deck of Many Things that you, you co-wrote with uh, Major Mike Warnock. When we come back, I want to talk about that, cause some very insightful things in retrospect, looking back on our experiences in that part of the world. If it's okay with you, we'll chat a little bit about that after the break. Sounds good, Ben. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Faint. He's the owner of the Havoc Journal. You can learn more at the HavocJournal.com. Havoc with a K. It is definitely my go-to spot for all things military and first responder and, and really gives civilians a great perspective on what's going through the minds of these people that protect us at home and abroad. Again, this is Ben Bueller-Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Garcia. We're talking with Charles Faint, the owner of the Havoc Journal, one of my favorite websites. You can learn more, HavocJournal.com, Havoc with a K. Charles, why am I not surprised that you're a Dungeons and Dragons guy? You know, Ben, sometimes stereotypes hold true. So if you're looking at a guy that, that spent a lot of time as an intel officer in special operations, he, he, he or she probably had some type of role-playing game background. Well, crews are having a hard time. Maybe they need to start shipping out some more Dungeons and Dragons games to young people out there. You had a, a very difficult to to process story that you published on the Havoc Journal. You co-wrote it with Major Mike Warnock, and it's called "The Deck of Many Things." And um, you're talking about your, you know, kind of a retrospective look on Iraq, and and certainly you talk about how the impact of the way we finally withdrew from Afghanistan had a significant impact on you and your career and I just I want to pull a quote out of that article it says we should be able to wreck backwards tribal fighters in a matter of days you're talking about going into Afghanistan and how wrong we all were I just had a guest on who was talking about just how brilliant these fighters were I mean they would they would watch them they would adapt their their tactics based on what they saw and you know we had the high tech and they didn't but I mean they're literally he was talking about one case where they had an assembly line for planning IEDs where some guy would kind of stand there and he'd pick up a shell and dig a hole. But before you could shoot him because he wasn't doing anything, he was just digging a hole. And next thing you know, the next guy comes along and, you know, drops some depth cord in the hole. And the next guy, and anyway, it's just it's brilliant, but didn't work out so well for us. 
No, it didn't. And we were better organized. We we were better equipped. We had all these advantages, but we weren't in it to win it the way that the folks on the ground were. And as long as we continue to allow Afghanistan to be used by Pakistan to generate the war, then it could have continued indefinitely. And it did for over 20 years before we finally left. That was still the right answer, right? I mean, other than not going in in the first place? In terms of Afghanistan, I think it had to end at some point unless we're going to make a generational commitment. And I think there was an argument for that as well, just like we did in in Germany and Japan after the Second World War, Korea, or any any number of other places. But we left in in the worst way possible. I, I can't imagine, other than more Americans getting killed or left behind, how it could have ended worse. And I wasn't involved in any of that decision-making. The burden wasn't on me to do it. That might have been the best call to make, but it was really hard for me who spent four tours there, uh, very short, very safe tours of special operations, to justify the way that it ended. And as far as I know now, we're still giving the Taliban millions of dollars uh, to to run their government. And that's hard to rectify. Like you said, that's one of the things that contributed to my decision to get out of the Army when I did. Let's let's talk more, a little bit more in context and, and speak to Iraq because, I mean, Afghanistan has always been a mess, Ben's opinion. But we you talk about Japan and, and Germany and how Colin Powell's philosophy of you know if you if you, you break it you you buy it and how much time and money we invested in helping those countries rebuild as democratic societies, not not a prayer in Afghanistan but maybe a prayer in Iraq, but we just broke it too badly, in your opinion. Yeah, we absolutely did. And I, I think I mentioned this in the article. I, I kind of had an epiphany one day. I think it was it was my second or third tour in Iraq. And I, I was flying to from, from Balad down to Baghdad, and I was part of a two-helicopter convoy. And General Crystal was in the first helicopter. I was in the second one. The only time in Afghanistan I flew daylight, doors open, legs out. Uh, most terrifying thing that happened to me downrange, not because we got shot at because we didn't, but because I thought I was going to get sucked out the entire time I was I was traveling. It was bad then. But I remember flying over Baghdad in the daytime. I could really get a, a feel for it in a way I couldn't when we flew over at night or looking at it from like a predator feed or something. It's like, man, we messed this country up bad. What, whatever it was before, it's got to be worse now. And I, over time, in the, the meetings I was in, the readings I was doing, things like that, really realized we made some really fundamental mistakes, starting with debathification, where we got rid of anyone who really kind of knew how to keep the sewer running and the lights on, and then disbanding the Iraqi army, the Iraqi military, which is kind of one of the things that was holding that whole society together, and then letting the Syrian and Iranian borders be as open as they were, and you mentioned the Powell Doctrine, if you break it, you bought it, which is closely tied, in my opinion, to the democratic peace theory, meaning that if we don't want to fight people, we just, we just force them to become democracies. And then we we weren't in it long enough to, to really see the fruit of our labor. So we, we made some really big mistakes in both those places. Of course, Iraq is the war that we didn't have to fight, although at the time, I think that given the information that we had, that was a reasonable call to make to go in what we did. Yeah, and it started, I think, in my opinion, a whole series of bad statecraft, if you will, Charles. But, you know, again, you, you think about, and in your article you cite this, you know, even with Japan, I mean, we left the emperor in place. We allowed their infrastructure to continue so that the people of Japan knew that they were defeated, but 
they bought into the, the transition. And I, I even talked to a World War II veteran who was part of the occupying forces, and he was surprised at how much respect the Japanese people showed to him because obviously Bushido code or what it was, but night and day different from the Middle East. Absolutely right. Part of the problem in Iraq and Afghanistan and even in Gaza is that the wars end before one side considers itself defeated. So there's a whole body of work on this international relations. I think Lutok was the one that originally wrote the article, Give War a Chance. So if you end conflict too soon before there's a clear victor, then there's no reason that people should quit fighting, especially when they're a sanctuary and neighboring countries to go to and plenty of people want to support them. One of the reasons things ended the way they did in Germany and Japan is because there was no Afghanistan border to flee across. There was no Iranians waiting with open arms in any of the neighboring countries, largely because Germany and Japan attacked all their neighbors. And by that point in the war, both the German population and the Japanese population knew they'd been defeated. And in Iraq and Afghanistan and with the Hamas and Gaza, there, you don't have those conditions. So the wars are going to continue indefinitely because we have well-meaning interlopers coming in and stopping things, forcing peace before you have someone coming on top. Would you say that formula applies to Israel's initiative in Gaza right now? I think Israelis know that. I think by, I mean, right now, if you look at the bill that's before Congress, the bill that we're calling the border security bill, but it's actually a foreign aid bill, if you look at where the money is going, we're funding both sides of that conflict. If I remember correctly, I think we're giving $20 billion to Israel, and we're giving $10 billion to to Gaza. And there's good reasons to, to give to both. I'm not disputing that. But if we keep giving the way that we've been giving, we're just fueling both sides, and, and we're never going to have any of the conflict. Well, I'm, I'm all for helping rebuild, but now's not the time to do that. We all have to be optimists, Charles. I, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, if you guys had elected Hamas, we wouldn't have these problems. But right. there again, I'm, I'm coming from that American perspective, which is probably not at all fair. But Charles, speaking about that, I want to get now to, uh, after the break, to Ayman Kafel's article, Resurgence of Militant Groups and the Anticipated Surge of Terrorism, because I think that's certainly an appropriate transition for what we're seeing happening now, but in a different spot of the world that may surprise some people. Ben Bueller Garcia here in American Warrior Radio talking with Charles Faint, the Havoc Journal, HAVOKJournal.com. Check it out. Don't forget you can find hundreds of archived episodes of American Warrior Radio at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buber-Garcia. We're very proud to be affiliated with SilencerCentral.com. You know, shooting with a silencer can be more enjoyable and definitely safer for your hearing. Silencers are legal in 41 of the 50 states. If you'd like to explore your options, start at SilencerCentral.com to check your state rules. Then their experts will handle all the paperwork and even thread your barrel for you. They can ship your silencer right to your front door. At Silencer Central, it's all they do. They are the experts. SilencerCentral.com. We're back with Charles Fate, the CEO, owner. You need to get yourself another title, Charles. That's starting to get old. <laughs> you know, one thing I do, because I'm self-employed, every once in a while I fire myself and then hire myself back just to keep my... Oh, 
keep my edge. Do you, do you give yourself do you give yourself a hiring bonus every time you do that? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's a great idea. See, that's that's why I talk to you. Um, again, I encourage people to visit HaveAJournal.com, particularly for a civilian like me. It's it provides really really good insights uh, into the the mindset, and, and particularly right now, I think we're just seeing the the front crest of some real problems with our global war on terrorism veterans. I think those are now just starting to bubble the surface and they're not going to go away anytime soon. But one of the other problems is the, I mean, it doesn't take a Lieutenant Colonel Army Intelligence Specialist to anticipate that once again, Afghanistan was going to become a breeding ground for terrorism. But Alan Cafell's article talks about a growing threat in South Asia, which I had not heard before. Absolutely right. I'm glad you brought Ayman up. He's a fantastic author and writer. And in fact, I, I was just talking with Ayman. I was on his podcast, Project Sapien. He and Jake are, are excellent hosts. And we talked about a, a variety of things. And one of the things Ayman brought up that's directly related to this article is this concept of, of how these these problems are spreading and emanating. Of course, Ayman is from Lebanon and he spent some time in Liberia. So he knows firsthand what happens in these types of conflicts. And Ayman is also back in school, as you know, Ben, he's a police officer in Massachusetts, but he's also going back to school. And th this article that he wrote stemmed from some research he did for his program. And it's a fascinating read. It's a really short one to talk about some jihadist insurgencies that are going on in places a, a lot of folks don't think about. Well, it's almost like a cancer. And these things, I mean, some of these groups he cited in his article... I'd never even heard of some of these folks, much less, you know, where they were. But this fractionalization, it's almost like terrorism franchises, I guess is the yeah. way I'd look at it. Has anyone, Charles, ever taken a look at, I, I could probably make a good guess at this, but what creates a fertile environment or some of these things to not just to pop up, but to actually take hold and get some legs? There's an entire body of work on this. Uh, regularly, people do their doctoral dissertations on it. There's think tanks that, that study it, et cetera. So real or imagined grievances is the biggest driver. It's not poverty. There are plenty of people in the world that are poor and don't resort to terrorism. It's not necessarily religion. There are plenty of people of all faiths who not engage in terrorism. But if you have a grievance and you can wrap it in the mantle of self-righteousness, which religion is useful for doing, then you can motivate people to do just about anything, especially if you take the consequences, both terrestrial and celestial, away from them, saying if you do this attack, you'll go to heaven or you'll get your, your 40 virgins or whatever, then they'd encourage this type of behavior. So further confusing the picture, Ben, is a lot of these insurgents groups is they'll pop out out of seeming nothing, then they'll change their name or get absorbed by some other group, or then they'll they'll... they'll They'll splinter off and they become something else. And Ayman in his article mentioned this Islamic State Khorasan province, which I'd never heard of. I had to Google. So I think that's very interesting how these things pop up. They're around for a while and they go away. But every once in a while, they get legs and they turn into ISIS or they turn into Al-Qaeda or they turn into an insurgency in the Philippines of all places. This Islamic insurgency has been going on for decades. So they're all over the place. They're getting more. And I think Americans need to wake up to the fact that it could happen here as well. I'm not talking about people that were out in the streets calling for an end to the war. They want to cease fire in Palestine. That's not terrorism. But it is here, and it's going to get worse if we don't keep our thumb on it and make sure it doesn't blow up into something bigger. 
Charles, is there any successful regional security strategies where we and some of these other governments are keeping an eye on this and, and, and prioritizing what we need to do? Because I almost get the sense if I was very, very Machiavellian and like the Chinese, I, I did my strategy in terms of centuries instead of in terms of the next election cycle. I could make a pretty good argument and say, you know what, if we just create a whack-a-mole situation all around the globe, eventually even a superpower like the U.S. is going to get stretched too thin. I think that is part of it, but I think that we have the capability of doing any number of other states to engage in whack-a-mole. You've got the, the Germans were helping out in Mali, for example. So there's all these little things that pop up. What really drains nations and really causes empires to collapse is a long drawn out, bloody, on the ground conflict like what the Russians had in Afghanistan, what we engage in all over the world, etc. So these little things popping up, they're annoying, they're not a big deal. What if you really want to get after a country, you do it internally. And I think that's more along the lines of what the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, other people who went on which it's harm are doing inside America. And if you can get in there, you corrupt the youth, if you can affect their institutions, you get them to start hating their own country and their own people and each other then I think that goes a lot farther along than someone shooting missiles at boats in the Red Sea, at places that no one's ever been, that killing our troops, which is extremely important to you and me, Ben, but unfortunately to much, much of America, it's a foreign concept to them. So by doing these little things, I don't think it's nearly as concerning as what they're trying to do internally in the U.S. I tell you, one of the things that really stuck out at me and, and, and caused me a lot of heartburn and heartbreak it's almost from from Iman's article. I almost get the impression that some of these groups, I mean, it's like rival street gangs in, in L.A. or or Chicago, and you know, then they start going after each other, and in the interim, you've got innocent civilians in the crossfire. Well, so Ben it goes back to what I was talking about before about wrapping yourself in the middle of self righteousness. I think you and I talked about this on your show before, but the number one thing that we found on the digital media that we captured from people in Iraq and Afghanistan, the insurgents, was porn. So we got all these holy warriors out here that I'm, I'm doing this for Islam. No, you're doing it for a paycheck and because it's cool and stuff like you're just like every other 20-year-old on the planet. So they're not really dedicated warriors. Some of them really are. They really are committed to, to their faith. But the majority of them are doing it for something to do because it makes them feel good because they're getting paid for it. So all these things wrapped up together and then their interpretation of especially Wahhabism in Islam gives them the excuse to go out and do it. Now, it almost sounds like the cartels. Has there ever been any evidence of crossover training or cooperation between some of these factions and the cartels? Yeah, they're very closely related. So, uh, and if you're if you're looking to get someone or something into a foreign country, then cartels are a good way to do it. There's numerous examples of Hezbollah operating down in South America, very very tightly connected there. And of course, we regularly see reports of infiltrators from these organizations coming in through our southern border. So they're everywhere. They can be everywhere. It's not hard to get people or materials into these places. And we frequently hear in Europe these these terrorist attacks where they're breaking out AK fully automatic AK-47s in places with very strict gun control laws. So they're able to do it. But the main difference between an international criminal organization and an organization like Al-Qaeda is that the criminals want to be parasites. They don't want the state to fall. They're very comfortable with it. And the jihadists want uh, the destruction of the West, and they want they want Sharia law and everything else, which is also something that the international 
cartels don't want. They're quite happy with their mistresses and their drugs and their liquor and their fancy houses and things like that. So at some point, those interests diverge, but generally speaking right now, they're very much aligned. Charles, you know I love you like a brother, and that's the only reason why coming up next on American Warrior Radio, we're going to talk about someone that I never, ever thought would make American Warrior Radio, a young lady by the name of Taylor Swift. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller garcia We're interviewing Charles Faint, CEO, owner of the Havoc Journal. You can learn more and visit HavocJournal.com. You'll find out more about American Warrior Radio, AmericanWarriorRadio.com, or your favorite streaming platform. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Charles Faint, the owner of the Havoc Journal, which is my go-to place for all things military and first responder. You can visit them at HavocJournal.com, Havoc spelled with a K. Charles, I was busting your chops a little bit. and I mean, I've turned down movie studios who want to have their guests on because there was no connection, no military, no first responder, no support, no Gary Sinise-ishness. But Charles Faint wants to talk about Taylor Swift, like everybody else in the country. So, platform is yours, sir. Convince me. Yeah, Ben, are you ready for it? Let's go. I'm ready. I'm curious, but I'm ready. Yeah, so Taylor Swift, I've been a fan for uh, for a number of years. I'm not talking rabid Swifty, but just an acknowledgement of her music, especially when I was younger. I, as you know, Ben, I, I spent some time in the Air Force Airborne Division, and one of Taylor Swift's early songs called Ours takes place at the National Airport, which I flew into and out of many times, and her boyfriend in that video played a character of a 101st Airborne soldier, so I felt the connection with that. Also, she's a very talented musician. I play a little guitar, and I'm I'm intrigued by her style. And I have two daughters, one is 21 and 15, and my 15-year-old is really into Taylor Swift. And recently, I was asked to go on a podcast to talk about whether Taylor Swift had enough power to take over a country. And I'm not going to reveal any spoilers on that, but the short answer is absolutely. And if we're looking at the way power is influenced in the modern time, who can influence people to do things, it's often not national-level actors. It's non-state actors like Taylor Swift, who has such an enormous audience and such economic power that she can create situations where she's going to take it past her wildest dreams and, and make all kinds of things happen. So she's creating her own gravity now. Indeed. And not just for the Super Bowl. She's, of course, in big-time news right now between the billion-dollar-plus heiress tour that she did and then the the Super Bowl that her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, from the Chiefs recently completed. But she's been at this for a, a long time, and her ability to motivate people to do things for her or, or the, her endorsement uh, is worth so much now that I think she and people like her are very underestimating what what they can do to and for regimes around the world. So give me a, a worst case or maybe best case example of that. Is it is it go beyond the army giving her a few bucks to say, hey, you know, join the military and that's a good thing for America? Or <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, how give me an application of how this could actually 
pencil out in the worst-case scenario. So not necessarily worst case, but just an example because we were talking about it earlier today. Let's say, for example, that Taylor Swift decided that the most important thing in Taylor Swift's life right now is a ceasefire in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So she starts by, it starts with a tweet. So she goes on X and she says, ceasefire now, Gaza, free Gaza, whatever. So she gets all of her Swifties engaged in that. She has her lawyers. She has her entertainment people start putting pressure on politicians. She goes on talk shows. She demands an audience with President Biden, which she would get, and she uses her platform to start moving that to happen. Now, because of the pressure that she brings to bear, both economically and politically, if she decided to do that or any number of other things that she decided she wanted to get into, that could influence things in a way that the government's not ready for it otherwise wouldn't do. So that's a primary example right there, because no one wants bad blood with Taylor Swift. Transition, Charles. You wrote a great article called Yale University and the Loneliness of the military professional about your personal experiences. And I got to tell you, Charles, going into the article, I didn't expect to read what you said about it. But um, it's interesting to me that you, you know, you consider yourself a war veteran, but not a combat veteran. I mean, you say you returned home with all the same holes you you left with, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you didn't see some things. Absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad that you read that article so your listeners don't have to, Ben. It's extremely lengthy, so thanks for, for picking that one and summarizing it up. So, yeah, I, after uh, after seven tours in Iraq and Afghanistan with some really great units doing some really great missions, I decided it was time to do something else. And after several years of applying to and failing to get accepted to teach at West Point, I finally got picked up, and after getting rejected by some of the best schools in the country, I got accepted by Yale, and I ended up going to school there. And I really, I had um, misperceptions about what going to school at Yale would be like. I went to, I started off in community college, Ben, as you know, and I wanted to go to school in the University of Alabama for grad school, but I, I ended up at Yale. And I went there because Gerald Stanley and Crystal taught there, and I figured if it was good enough for him, it would be good enough for me. I thought I'd be fighting hippies on the green every Friday and all this ridiculousness, and, and I just didn't. I, I had a great time there. I'm still close. I go there as often as I can. Being at West Point, I, it's a short drive away. But what you mentioned about the poem is the uh, the loneliness of, of the military professional is I borrowed that title from a, an author called Margaret Atwood, who a lot of you readers will have heard of, who wrote a poem called The Loneliness of the Military Historian. And it's, it's, it's talking about how lonely it is for her to be in this male-dominated profession. And I thought of, I, I applied that after I left Yale to a poem about how lonely it is for military members to be at in colleges with people that don't understand them. And that's a direct relation to what you are just talking about, Ben, about this young man who did his, did his time in Iraq and now finds himself in a college classroom. And it, it, so you're, I mean, there's there's some obvious things. One is... You've got more world experience, um, yeah. and and you're sometimes, what, twice the age of the other people yeah. in the classroom. I, I remember we had a guy in one of my business courses who was 65, and he just decided to go back to school. But we loved him. I mean, what a hoot he was, and, you know, what a lot, what a lot of information you could share. But th- there's certain sort of discriminatory things, too, that you did notice. Even though you, I mean, like somebody said, wait a minute, um, you know, you're in the military, you're at Yale. As if yeah, the two were mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's so. I love my classmates, 
been, there were so many people that were so different than me. We get along so well. I especially love the, the undergraduates. They're hungry for knowledge. They're willing to be persuaded. I, I, I really appreciate that. I had the undergraduate of the house all the time. My wife and I hosted them. So, but it was interesting. And the most, most interesting thing was when I would tell people that I'm from Alabama, almost invariably, the first thing they would say was, you don't sound like you're from Alabama. And I, I always thought that was interesting because this is how the people from my family in northern Alabama and hospital area talk. When you unpack that a little bit, what, what they're really saying is you don't sound like an ignorant redneck, which, of course, is, is pretty offensive because I'd ask them, like, well, how many people from Alabama have you ever met? Okay, well, I, you know, you're the first one. Well, all right, sample size N equals 1. 100% of people from Alabama, as far as you know, talk exactly like I do, and they think exactly like I do because you've never met anybody else from there. But they were getting their perception of the South from caricatures and, and movies like Forrest Gump. So we we worked through all these issues together, and then they had some major misperceptions about the type of people who join the Army. Only poor people join the Army. That's not true. It's mainly middle class if you look at the stats. About the casualties of war, they're always minorities. No, most of the people in combat arms and most of the people that die in war are white men. So we worked through these issues together, and, and they helped me understand a bunch of things that I'd never experienced before because I literally went from college straight to the Army, and I never looked back. And I was there, I was in my early 40s, late 30s, early 40s at the time. Not only was I older than most of my classmates, but I was older than many of my professors. So that was an interesting dynamic while I was there. But like I said, I, I recommend it. And anyone, any vet looking to go to school, shoot for the stars. Go to the best school you can go to. It's going to be okay. You're going to have a great time. But I just I can't go over the fact, I mean, veterans have earned these benefits, and they should definitely use them. I mean, so uh, easy to say. You're, you're saying, hey, you've got the GI Bill. Use it, right? I mean, in fact, Absolutely. I know a guy, a veteran, who actually used it at a, at a trade school, technical school. And now he does, like, custom engraving for Hollywood movie stars. You know, I'll, I'll pay it for it by the GI Bill. But um, so interesting. Well, and I tell you, just one thing to keep in mind, Charles, those those kids that were saying that were, you know, the same ones that protest against the 1% while attending one of the most elite schools in the country. But we'll, we'll leave it at that. Got a minute left, Charles. What uh, What's happening at the Second Mission Foundation? Any updates there? Yeah, yeah. So we recently returned from Shot Show. Um, so Kathy, Elisa, and I well, went out to Shot, and Mike Warnock, who we know well, was supposed to come, but he got COVID, and he decided he didn't want to share a, a fatal, highly contagious disease with us, which I appreciate. Thanks, Mike. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't make it. But while we were out there, we really started crafting a passport for both Harry Journal and Second Mission. So we've got one book right now that that's going to come out in print in the next month or so. And then they we're really going to get into books. We have five or six manuscripts right now that are ready to go. And I recently realized that what I want to do for not only the rest of, you know, my retirement, but for as long as I can is help veterans tell their story, veterans and members of the America's service community tell their story. So we're going to be putting out books. I, I want to do five this year, but with Kathy and Lisa and a couple other folks, working with me, I think we're going to be, might be able to do double that. Outstanding. Outstanding. Charles, it's always a pleasure to have you on American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, check out HavocJournal.com. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.